All right, if you will turn with me to the book of Hosea, Hosea chapter 12, the Lord willing, this morning we're going to look at the final uh, three verse or three chapters of Hosea as we finish out our series through the book. Uh, thank you for those who are praying uh, for me. Last week uh, I had the opportunity to be out in Salem, Oregon for uh, national uh, conference for our association of churches. Uh, it was wonderful. Uh, the preaching was good. Uh, the singing was great. Worship was wonderful. Very encouraging. I also bring greetings from kind of two generations from our church's life. So the first is from Tim Moore and his wife. Uh, they were there. Some of you remember the Moores uh, from their service here in the 90s. And then I also bring greetings from Caleb and Melinda Blaha. Uh, they were members here maybe seven, eight years ago. And they moved out to Salem to Hazelnut Farm. And they live about 20 minutes north of where the conference was. So I went up and I ate dinner with them and ate hazelnuts in the middle of their hazelnut farm. It was wonderful. Um, But they're doing great. It was just good to see both of those families and they bring their greetings. Uh, Last Sunday, again, thank you for praying. I had an opportunity to preach down in Lincoln Park at Resurrection Church. Uh, What a joyful congregation to to preach to. Uh, They get to meet several of the believers there. Uh, I'll just say, you know, one of the things that we take for granted is air conditioning. Uh, they don't yet have it. Uh, and it was just warm. And to see these people engage during the sermon when it was, it was warm, uh, it was just a real joy uh, to be with them. So thank you for praying. It's a joy to be able to, to worship with sister churches as well. Would you pray with me here before we turn to God's word together? Would you join me in prayer one more time? Father God, that is, that is our desire, that we would behold you in your steadfast love, in your mercy towards us when we were in our greatest need. Would we see your kindness and your faithfulness and your pursuit of us, even when wayward. And we pray that you would speak to us now through your word uh, for, for our good and for your glory, we pray. Amen. Mount... Huashan, I'm not 100% sure I'm saying that right, but Mount Huashan over in China uh, has a hiking trail that's known as the world's deadliest trail. And it's known for that because uh, at its most dramatic section, you're walking on a set of boards, maybe three boards wide, about two feet wide, that are, that are attached to the side of a cliff. And you are clipped on after you've signed the waiver and gotten the safety talk and given a harness. You are clipped on to cables that are about shoulder height. There's two of them. And they're attached to the cliff as well. And you are walking along. And these two boards, uh, or two feet wide board that's attached to the side of this cliff, is, is then uh, on the, uh, there's a drop off. And it's about 2,000 feet down to the valley floor. Now, the highest structure, I had to look this up, the highest structure in Michigan is uh, the Wren Center, the Marriott Tower. It's 767 feet. So you would have to stack three of those and then step outside on a two-foot wide board. That gives you some sense of of what it's like. And uh, this section, the board section, is about 150 feet long, and you get to the end, and there's some lovely views, and then you have to turn around and come back. And what makes that tricky is they don't have, like, stoplights. That's why there's two cables attached to the cliff. And on the way back, you use the different cable, and you literally lean, and people hug, and you go around people. 
as they're going out and you're coming back. It's a sobering hike, right? And at, and at the heart of it, you, you realize that the only way back to safety is to turn around. You have to go back the way that you, the way that you came. When you make it to the end, you're only halfway done. You can't, you can't make it home by just keep going, right? Maybe you've been on a hike like this where you've gone a ways and you've kind of hoped it would circle around. Maybe some of you have been lost in a city like this, right? You're like, I, I think if I keep turning right, I'll make it back. And at some point, you just have to own it. Like the only way back is for me to turn and go back the way I came, right? That's, that's the only way this is, going to, this is going to work. Spiritually, that's where Israel's at. The only way back is to turn around. That's the only way, right? Maybe, maybe you have, have been there where you've thought, okay, I'm going to kind of gently nudge this thing, right? A wide arc, nothing extreme. Maybe people won't notice. I'll try to get back on track. But when God calls his people to repentance, it's a 180, right? You have to turn around. If you're going in the wrong direction and you're, you're needing to return to the Lord, you, you have to turn around. As we've been going through the book of Hosea, we've noted that he's often called the deathbed prophet. And, of course, Israel in the north, economically they're prospering, the economy's up, things are going well. They're not thinking of themselves as on their deathbed. But in hindsight, we realize that Hosea is the last prophet that will be sent. This is the last warning that's going to come. This is the last call to turn around before Assyria is going to come and take the northern kingdom. So as we are marching through the book, and maybe you remember the, the vivid illustration through the life of Hosea and uh, his wayward wife, Gomer. Maybe you recall this. And then these chapters that we've marched through here, it's building to the end. To the final warning and the climax of the, of the book. There's a sense of urgency as Hosea's book here ends. This is the, this is the final word of the final prophet. This is it. No more revelation from God will come to the northern kingdom. No more warnings. No more promises. We want to look at the final three chapters, chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14 here this morning, and we'll structure our study around four points. Let me give them to you, and then we'll rehearse them as we go, just so you have a feel for where we're going. First, learn the lessons of history, and I'll mean that in a couple ways. We'll see that in chapter 12. Second, see their undoing. Third, know the enemy. And then fourth, and finally, take the only road home. So first, learn the lessons of history. You may recall from last week or two weeks ago, we're going to pick up the last verse from chapter 11 and then all of chapter 12. Learn the lessons of history. Chapter 11 ends with this contrast, right, between Israel in the north, the northern kingdom, and Judah in the south. And you may recall again from our series a few weeks ago that all of the leaders in the north have been wicked. All of them have led Israel into further and further idolatry, what Hosea has called spiritual adultery. And they've reached out to their neighbors, to Assyria even, and to Egypt, but not to God. They've pursued these other lovers for security, for satisfaction, but they've not returned home. 
Look at the last verse of chapter 11, Hosea chapter 11, verse 12. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah walks with God still and is faithful to the Holy One. Chapter 12, verse 1. Ephraim feeds on the wind, pursues the east wind, probably a reference to the nation of Assyria, all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. Winston Churchill has said, and others have said similar things, those that fail to learn the lessons of history are doomed to repeat them. All right? So Israel's history here is a national one, but it's a spiritual one. So the warning is for us, lest we repeat this. And beginning in chapter 12, verse 2, you see God's final indictment against his people. God has an indictment against Judah, Hosea 12, 2. And will punish Jacob according to his ways. And that reference to Jacob is significant because you'll remember that before Israel was a nation, Israel was a man. Right? Do you remember the patriarchs? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. From Jacob's descendants came the 12 tribes of Israel, the nation. And you'll also remember that Jacob's name was changed. Changed to Israel. There's a lesson for Israel in Hosea's day by remembering their namesake. By remembering Israel of old, their ancestor Jacob. So if you look down at verse 3, clearly a reference to, to Jacob. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. In his manhood, he strove with God. Remember this from our study in Genesis just a couple of years ago. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel and there God spoke with us. So here, Hosea lays out the life of Jacob, not chronologically, but theologically, thematically, in order to, to get this sense that, that Jacob, remember, he was, he was a desperate man. He was, a, he was trying to take things into his own hands, and yet he was transformed by God. God changed him. He was a recipient of grace. Why is Hosea talking about Jacob? Why talk about the namesake? Why here? Well... Israel is acting like Jacob of old. They're acting like the conniver. They're trying to to just kind of work the angles, to work it out with their neighbors, to solve it politically. They are like Jacob without grace. The one who took matter into his own hands. They're struggling for success. Look down at verse 8. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. The nation is affluent. The nation is not thinking we're on our deathbed. They're thinking we're doing just fine. We've got to make some adjustments, but we'll be just fine. Of course, their affluence wasn't the issue. It's that they trusted in themselves. Like, like many Christians today, they, they talk a lot about their work ethic and not a lot about God's blessing. Tempted to take all the credit. May, may we never forget all the ways that God has blessed us and provided for us and given us our daily bread. 
In the face of this, Hosea now calls them to repentance, calls them to justice, calls them to faith. Look back in verse 6. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. It's God who will help you. If you are going to wean yourself off of self-reliance, it will be God who helps you. It is only by His grace that the nation might yet return and repent after exile. Look down at verse 9. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you to dwell in tents and in the days of the appointed feast. I love that phrase back in verse 6. It just jumped out to me as I was reading this passage over in personal time, just in preparation for this week. Verse 6 again. So you, by the help of your God, return. Augustine prayed, give what you command and command what you will. See what he's saying? Enable, to, enable me to do all that you require of me and then require whatever you'd like. Or as Hosea 12.6 says, return, hold fast, wait, by the help of your God. He must enable, he must empower it or it will not be done. If he doesn't help us, we cannot obey. If he doesn't change us, we will remain the same. We may change some habits, but we cannot change a heart. God's indictment continues there in verse 10. God says, it was my prophet whom I used. You saw a great leader. You saw a Moses. You saw Elijah. You saw an Elijah. But it was me, right? You heard them preach and deliver the law and deliver sermons and prophecies. But those were my words. Jacob, your ancestor, received grace. But you as a nation still remain self-reliant. Not God-reliant. You're focusing on helping yourself, not God's help, right? On your own discipline, not dependence, hard work, not what a blessing God has given us. Do you remember the issue, right? The issue was, was turning to what they could control, what they could manipulate, the gods, right? You could see the calf. You could see Baal. You could, you could offer this and know, okay, life, fertility, blessing is coming. It was very controllable. It was very easy. And in such, they, they relied on their own strength, not God's, on human leaders rather than His leading. We need the same lesson in our day. Not to rely on our own wisdom or effort, not on ourselves, but on our God's. Too often we, we think about God kind of like a last resort. Like he's the, the special forces, the special ops that come in when we're really, really in a pickle. He'll come in and, and rescue us. Very capable, but you don't use them normally. Or uh, I was reminded back to uh, years ago, I worked as a, a waiter down in Louisville. And uh, this was when five-hour energy was all the rage. Now the commercials for five-hour energy, have you seen these? It's, it's marketed at 30-somethings to, like, remember the days when you started using 5-Hour Energy. And, and these guys would come in on their shift, right? And you, know, you, you come in at 3 or 4, you're going to work till close, and just pound a 5-Hour Energy, and it just gets you through. It's a little burst, right? 
You feel overwhelmed. You feel tired. You turn to God. All too often, we push him to the edges, the peripheral, the outskirts of our lives. He's around, but he's not central, right? He's, he's closed, but he's not integrated into our lives. We're not living dependent on him. Again, Israel still had a theistic doctrinal statement. But in practice, they were Baal worshippers. They, they didn't need God day to day. Like now, may we, right? May we, by God's help, with the help of our God, learn these lessons and live dependent on His grace, repenting, turning from self-reliance. Let's turn now to chapter 13. Point number two, see their undoing. See their undoing. We think back and we think, well, Assyria was their undoing. That's what did it. Bigger nation conquered the smaller one. Chapter 13 tells a surprisingly different story. It it wasn't actually Assyria. Before speaking of their undoing, Hosea reminds them of their doing. Idolatry, right? They have been unfaithful to Yahweh. Spiritual adultery. He doesn't use the language here, but it's, it's operating in the background. Look again at uh, Hosea 13, verses 1 and 2. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, speaking of of the tribe of Ephraim there. But then notice the end of verse 1 of chapter 13. He incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more. They make for themselves metal images. Idols skillfully made of their silver. All of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Then he says in verse 3, that as a result, Israel is like, and then he used the same image we saw back, uh, back in chapter 6 about their love, right? They're like, they're like the morning fog. The sun hits it and poof, gone. Like a dew on the grass, it's there for a moment and then gone. Look down at verse 6 of chapter 13. When they had grazed this image, they became full. They were filled and their hearts were lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. Fullness led to forgetfulness, right? Abundance to amnesia. When, when the barn is full, right? When the cupboard is stocked, when the paycheck is steady, when the IRA is growing... The God who provides is kind of pushed to the back. He's not denied. He's forgotten. He isn't needed day to day because he's already provided. I, I, I feel this, right? I feel this. Our Savior teaches us to, to pray in light of our daily bread. If we're honest, we have today's bread and tomorrow's and the next day. When, when we're not as dependent... On rain for food. John prayed earlier thanking the Lord for the rain. And we should. But, but your food for the next month really wasn't dependent on that rain. Uh, it's nice to have a garden. But it's kind of a luxury item, isn't it? When, when you can go to town and you have four grocery tr- stores to choose from. You're not thinking we're going to run out. This isn't... It's not, You have have to work a little harder to feel dependent on the Lord. You have to work harder not to forget who provides Jehovah Jireh. 
Notice what God says about himself in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 13. Rather, verse 4 and 5. Hosea 13, 4. I am the Lord your God. From the land of Egypt, you know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. The irony is, they knew other gods. They knew Baal, they knew Asherah. You know other gods, sure, small g, sure, but you know no true God, no God but me. Besides me, there is no Savior. Do you see, God is jealous. Jealous for their affection. Like Hosea with Gomer, he, and not her lovers, is the one providing. And he wants them to know this. He is jealous that he be recognized and honored and glorified. Friends, he made you. And he deserves praise from you. Romans, sorry, Revelation chapter 4 verse 11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. And then here's the reason given. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So now comes Israel's undoing. We expect him to circle back and say, it's going to be Assyria, just like I said. But that's not where Hosea goes. Look at verse 7 here in chapter 13. Yahweh is speaking. So I am to them like a lion. Like a leopard, I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast. And there I will devour them like a lion as a wild beast would rip them open. So he, he likens himself to a lion, a bear, a wild beast, a leopard. And he's not attacking their enemies on their behalf. He's coming after them. And he's going to do it through Assyria. So just like God doesn't want Baal to get the credit for providing for them their harvest. So he doesn't want Assyria to get the credit when he's the one judging his people. Hosea then goes further, gives another reason why. It's because Hosea is the last prophet that Israel is against. Verse 9, he destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. He then uses one more image here, the next few verses, to describe the nation and her people in their unfaithfulness. It's, it's a hard image. It gets our attention. It's hard to decipher. I want to read verses 12 and 13. And then I want to read a comment by a commentator, Dwayne Garrett, that I think serves us well here. So look down at verse 12. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. Her sin is kept in store. Then note Hosea 13, 13. The pangs of childbirth come for him. But he is an unwise son. For at the right time, he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. This is what Duane Garrett says. Ephraim is like a woman going into labor whose child is breech, such that both the mother and the child are likely to die. In Hosea's metaphor, he says, both the institution, Israel, the mother, and her children, the people, are doomed. Do you see? Because of her sin... She is doomed. Friends, sin is always 
that serious. The warning that they received, this last word from this last prophet, is a warning that we need to be reminded of. We have our sin, and and how do we often handle our sin? We manage it, we hide it, we control it, we fence it, we conceal it, we deny it, we downplay it, we might ignore it, we might flirt with it, coddle it, feed it, play with it, nurse it. But death is the end, isn't it? I want to zoom in at the end of chapter 13, because the New Testament does, on point number three, know the enemy. Hosea 13, 14 through 16. Know the enemy. Point number three. We've already talked about the enemy, right? It's Assyria. He's been very clear so far in the book. No surprise there. And he ends the chapter with an absolutely vivid description of the judgment that's coming by the hands of Assyria. What he again calls the east wind as they're going to come out of the east. Look at the very end of verse 14. Compassion is hidden from my eyes. And then notice what that's going to look like. Verse 15, verse 16. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord, will come rising from the wilderness and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. It's not going to be pretty. But in the middle of this, there's still hope. And Hosea, in verse 14, taps a theme of, of death leading to life or life coming from death. Verse 14, let me read it. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where is your your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Those last two lines, O death, O Sheol, we, we recognize those. Those are taunts, right? Those are taunts of death. And so I think the, the first two statements are better taken as declarations than questions, right? So we could, we could translate it this way. This is how Dwayne Garrett translates it in his commentary. I think this is helpful. From the power of Sheol, I will redeem you. From death, I will ransom them. Oh, death, where is your barbs? Where is your destructive power, Sheol? So this exile that they're heading into is going to be a kind of national death. God is promising To raise Israel again. To redeem the nation. He's promising victory over the enemy. Over death itself. And so Paul can take his reading of Hosea rightly and say, Hosea was taunting death. What's the implication? There is life after death. God can bring resurrection. Even to a nation. Even to an individual. And Paul takes that theme. That taunting of death. And applies it. In a chapter about the resurrection, where he speaks to Christians and says, in Christ, we too can taunt death. In Christ, we too can celebrate resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, we read, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body... 
must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Then he says, the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Assyria had reason. uh, Assyria was coming and Israel had reason to fear, right? Notice notice what he says two verses later. Little ones dashed and... Pregnant women, just brutal. Exile would be a kind of death, and many would die. They were facing legitimately scary things. Some pretty significant unknowns. They could look around at one another and say, we really have some pretty legit reasons to fear. But friends, God's people always have greater reasons not to fear. Our God taunts death. Our God then sends his only begotten son, our savior, to conquer death. And we follow him in that resurrection. So the reason not to fear is always greater in our lives as Christians. Do you hear that? The reason not to fear is always greater. The reason not to be afraid is more sure because we know the last enemy. Death itself has been defeated. Finally, point number four. Let's look at our last point together. Take the only road home. This is Hosea chapter 14. Want to draw out a couple themes here. The only way home for the nation is to turn around. They've stumbled because of their unfaithfulness to God. He says in verse one, they have to turn around. And then in Hosea 14 verse two, he gives them the language. He, he, we might say he gives them a scripted prayer of confession. This is how you ought to pray. This is what you ought to Say, notice the language that he he gives. Verse 2, take with you words and return to the Lord and say to him, take all, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. He says, say that nation, say that to your God. Our, our, Our lovers aren't the answer, say it. We will not ride on horses. The deliverance we need is not military. We will say no more, our God, to the works of our hands. In you, Hosea says, say this now to your God. In you, the orphan finds mercy. This is the echo of what we saw back in chapter 13, verse 4. Besides me, there is no Savior. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He is their only hope. He is their only home, right? In him, in God alone, the orphan finds mercy. What, what a statement. Again, this jumped out to me this week. It, I hope it jumped, it's vivid language, right? What's the implication? Israel is, is the orphan in need of mercy. Orphans don't have much to offer, do they? Like nothing. They, they, need, they need mercy. There's no buying your way back. There's no earning his favor. He will love them despite them freely. Look at verse 4 of chapter 14. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned from them. 
This is home. This is where we belong. This is what we were made for. A relationship with God, with our creator and repentance. Turning, returning, turning to God from our sin. Turning around, confessing, is the only road home. He will show repentant Israel mercy. He will show you mercy. If you'll turn and trust him. His offer is to love you freely in Christ. Mercy found, undeserved love. This is what awaits every sinner who repents. Every unfaithful man or woman who returns to the faithful one. Every gomer who comes home to God's steadfast love. In verse 8, Yahweh then again confirms what we've seen already, right? When God gets the credit he deserves, God gets the glory he deserves. Look down at verse 8. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. It's not the fertility cult. It's not, it's not that thing that's going to provide that thing. It's not, it's not the security that's found in this or that. He alone provides and he alone saves. He is jealous. He will not share our affection with lesser lovers. So his faithfulness calls to us. It calls to us to turn and receive mercy in Christ and then pursue lives of faithfulness in him. The steadfast love of the Lord. The mercy of God towards us like orphans. Let Israel then and leads us now to a decision. It's somewhat surprising, but I think it's actually not at all that he ends this book with wisdom categories. Here's the decision. There's only two ways to live. One way is marked by stumbling over sin. Where you're looking for affection and security and satisfaction in other lovers. Running after this or that. Worshipping anything but the true God. Unfaithfulness marks that way. But there is another way. Where we turn to God from our sin and trust him alone to save us. And to sanctify us and to satisfy us. This is the way of wisdom. This is the only road home. So let me ask you. Will you turn around and take that road? Let's pray. Father God, we have dealt with a book that's tone is warning. And yet we've found, even in the warning, a steady thread of hope rooted in your love, not ours. Your faithfulness, not ours. And we thank you that even as you taunted death then, you welcome us and encourage us to taunt death now. Because in Christ, death has been defeated. There is resurrection hope. And so help us not to fear. We have reason, better reason, deeper reason, stronger reason not to be afraid. So help us to trust in you. Father, I pray for those here this morning who have been and maybe even still are chasing after lesser lovers. They're they're committing spiritual adultery and you've made them aware of it, maybe for the first time. And you, by your spirit, are convicting them. I pray that they would turn and take the only road home, that they would 
take these words on their lips and say, those things will not save me. I have one God, one Savior. He alone can rescue me. I am the orphan. I need mercy. Would they cry out to you? Would you rescue them? Would, they, would you save them even this morning? And Father God, I pray for us who so often peddle our affection for other things, so often give in to distraction. Our doctrinal statement hasn't changed, and yet our hearts are wayward. May we return to you. By the help of our God, may we return to you this morning. We pray that you would do this for your glory, for your namesake, we pray in Christ's name.